You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the La Follette School of Public Affairs to interview Lauren Schmitz, Professor of Public Affairs, to talk about her work on the intersection of public policy and human genetics. Her research uses social, genomic, and epigenomic data to examine how inequalities in the social environment shape disparities in people's health, education, and socioeconomic outcomes. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. Well, first things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schmitz. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Adam. Since this is your first time on the podcast, can you begin by telling us a little bit about uh, your path to UW, how you developed your interests in the research you do, how you, you know, became the professor that you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to give the readers, uh, the listeners, I should say, a little bit of a background into my work, my research, I use social data, genetic data, and epigenetic data to look at how inequalities in the social environment uh, shape people's health, their education, and socioeconomic outcomes like earnings throughout their life course. These days, mostly I'm, I'm focused on health outcomes, but I've also looked at education and earnings. And actually, today is my birthday, which is kind of a funny coincidence. And I knew this, of course, when I said yes to the podcast, because I thought this would be a great way to celebrate my birthday. I've been a professor here at UW for almost two years. So this is my second year on the tenure track at uh, the La Follette School of Public Affairs, which has been a great home uh, so far for me. And uh, prior to that, I did a, a postdoc at the University of Michigan. And prior to that, I was at a graduate school in New York City. So I got to thinking a little bit about my trajectory this morning, as one does on their birthday. And so I have, a, I have an answer that's I think both reflects um, my path kind of personally, but also how that kind of integrates with my intellectual interests, because I think especially as social scientists, it's always both, right? It's it's how we're experiencing the world um, and also kind of, you know, how we're learning and growing as, as intellectuals. So I actually, I, I wasn't much of a biology junkie in high school. Crazy enough, I was a dancer and I trained for eight years to be a professional ballet dancer and then danced professionally um, after high school with a ballet company and a modern dance company. So initially I thought I wanted to be an artist that was, that was my life, that was my world. But as usual, life has other plans. And I, I quickly realized I, I wanted to go back to school. I, I wanted to do more. So I majored in economics and, and that's when I really began to get interested in, in market systems and their regulation. And I decided to go on and get my master's um, and then my PhD in economics. And uh, I decided to go to the New School for Social Research. And I'm not sure, have you guys heard of, of the New School at all um, in political science? I know they have a pretty unique political science department. They have a really unique uh, economics department. It's a heterodox economics department. And what does uh, heterodoxy mean? It, it means that we received a lot more training in political economy. 
than people normally do um, when they uh, go to get their PhD in economics. Uh, it's usually much more neoclassical focused in the United States, especially. Um, and so we, we read a lot of Marx, we read a lot of Ricardo, you know, all the kind of great historical political economy thinkers. And, and really, I think what that teaches you how to do is, is think about social class as the unit of observation rather than the individual. That's kind of, you know, then becomes the, the unit that you're thinking about how, you know, that's interacting with, with all these other dynamics. So really the dynamics between social class and other population outcomes like health, especially I, I got increasingly more interested in health. And um, the new school is situated in Union Square in New York City. So I, I always say that, you know, every day I rode the entire income distribution on the subway to get to class. Um, and what I mean by that is I started in Crown Heights, which at the time was a, a poorer area in Brooklyn. It was where we could afford to live as graduate students. I think by now it's been pretty well gentrified, but at the time the rents were low. So I would start out there on the subway, go under the river and, you know, pop up in Union Square. And all of a sudden you're surrounded by these expensive shops, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world. And, and I started in this area that probably had some of the poorer people in the United States and America, and also in terms of their access to opportunities. And, and I, I think that you can't take that trip every day and not think about capitalism and not think about how it's really powerfully shaping access to opportunity and, and shaping people's lives in ways, in structural ways that they might not always be able to overcome. Um, and so I immediately knew I wanted to study the, the social determinants of health and, and really got into that. The genetics piece <laughs> came a little bit later. That came a little bit later in graduate school. And then I really heavily um, doubled down on that during my postdoc. Um, I got my master's in genetics and human genetics during my postdoc. So I really then uh, wanted to up that side because I hadn't taken much biology up until then, just really the basics. You know, as I was kind of uh, later in graduate school, I was very fortunate to work with a mentor in New York City who uh, got me into the social genomics literature, um, got me thinking about how and why we might want to incorporate genetic data. And so as part of my dissertation, I also looked at how uh, genetic risk for smoking behavior affected uh, the smoking behavior of men who were drafted into Vietnam. Um, so I think that's a really kind of unique example, and, and we can talk about that a little bit later too when we, we talk about my work. And then on the personal level around the same time, kind of uh, towards the end of graduate school, I think my interest in incorporating kind of this genetic dimension into my work really coincided with a difficult time in my life when a close partner and, uh, or former partner, I should say at the time, and then a close friend died very suddenly of a heart attack. And, you know, he died way too young. And, and looking back, I think his early death was really um, the perfect storm of genes and environment. Um, he was Native American. He had a lot of cardiovascular disease in his family. And he also grew up really poor. He grew up uh, without access to many opportunities in New Mexico. And he worked really hard to get to where he was. He, he in the end, was a professional chef in New York City. But there's certain types of disadvantage that are just so difficult to, to overcome. And, you know, at the start, he was at a disadvantage. So I, I think this thing brings things back to the policy piece because um, there were so many ways in which I think he would have benefited 
from better access to nutrition growing up or more adequate schooling, you know, all these kind of structural social pieces. But then on top of it, he had been dealt this kind of unfortunate genetic lottery. And so um, policy can help level the playing field a little bit on the social environmental side. And I think that's where a lot of my interest in, you know, how does the social environment interact with what we're dealt genetically to kind of influence outcomes? And how can we potentially change the environment um, to, to see better health outcomes in, in the population as a whole? So yeah, that's a really kind of long-winded answer, but I, I, I thought about it this morning and I think I thought about it a lot because it's my birthday. So yeah, and so thanks for that question. No problem. But of course, speaking of which, because it is your birthday, we do of course have to wish a very, very happy birthday to you from the 1050 Bascom family Aww, and the rest you. of the political science department. Tough to have a quarantine birthday. So I guess we're all kind of finding weird, unconventional ways to celebrate it. So hopefully this can... This can be the fun little quarantine birthday celebration. Absolutely. This is the highlight for sure. Super happy to hear that. But that's a fascinating trajectory. And I thank you for sharing that with us. But thinking about that, of course, like the the combination of human genetics and politics can seem a little bit unconventional or unfamiliar to a lot of people who are just versed in political science, which you know, happens to be a lot of our listeners and admittedly myself. So I'd, I kind of want to ask just to level the playing field a little bit. What is genomics as you talk about it in your public policy classes? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think broadly genomics is the study of a person's genes. So our genome or our, our DNA and kind of the omics piece of it is, is really thinking also about how it's interacting with other genes and with how genes are interacting with other genes on our genome and also with a person's environment. I think a geneticist might think about the environment more in terms of epigenetic mechanisms or other you know, toxicants or so forth uh, that might influence gene transcription and, and the creations of proteins in the body. But for me in my class, I'm thinking about the environment more as the political environment, the social environment. So you can kind of conceptualize environment in many different ways. And I think as social scientists, of course, we think about the environment more as, as the social environment. So that's kind of when I talk about it in my class, that's kind of what we're, we're thinking about. When you're introducing this topic, like on the first day of class, how might you how might you like introduce that or especially like introduce some of the um, some of like the bigger picture aspects of like applying genomics to public policy? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So I think there are many different ways in, in how we can think about genetics and, and public policy. First, I think we can look at the role that genes might play in the broader domain of, of human social dynamics and inequalities. So just like race or like gender, we can think of genes as a stratifier. That genetic risk is kind of being something that contributes to disparities we see in the population. So, you know, the Vietnam example I gave earlier, there had been a lot of work in economics and in sociology, and I think also in political science, where they were using this really unique Vietnam draft lottery experiment to look at the causal effect of the military on um, you know, the outcomes of these men. So they were looking at health outcomes and, and um, earnings outcomes. You know, it, it kind of gave them a way to actually, because people were kind of randomized into, into the military, 
it gave them a way to look at the effect of the military of military service on all these different outcomes. And uh, people had looked at what is the effect of the draft on smoking, for example, which we did. And you know, they were only able to look at the effect of smoking, or I'm sorry, the effect of the draft on smoking on average. So for the, you know, what is the average outcome? Now, because we have all this molecular genetic data, we can look at the effect of the military draft in that case on smoking across the entire spectrum of genetic risk. And so in those studies that had been done prior to, to having genetic data, what they found was no effect of the draft on average on smoking behavior um, across the life course. What we then found, however, was there was an effect. People did tend to smoke more, but it was only men who were at high risk genetically for smoking. So there's genes that contribute to smoking addiction. We found that uh, people who had kind of those higher risk genomes um, for, for smoking addiction were more likely to um, continue to smoke even after you know, their service ended in Vietnam um, and they were more likely to die earlier of cancer and so forth. So you know, that's just one example, but, but it, it's, it's showcasing how it helps us better understand, I guess, how and why um, policy interventions have heterogeneous effects. You know, so again, I think like race or gender, we can think of it as another stratifier um, that's often hidden, you know, because we, we don't often know what our genetic risk is for these different things. So it's, it's kind of a secret underlying um, hidden factor, but it's a factor that does powerfully shape outcomes in a population. But I think we can also think about its implications to public policy more directly in terms of, you know, the implications of genetic discoveries or the expansions of, of biomedical technologies like CRISPR-Cas9, you know, or the growth in precision medicine and, and kind of the future of precision policy. All these things have started to come up, you know, in the mainstream discussion these days. And uh, I think a lot of the discussion centers around ethics and regulation. So, you know, just because we can, should we? And that's, I think, a whole other area where uh, social scientists can really provide a lot of um, insight and, into policy and, and regulation. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I, I know we're going to talk a little bit about CRISPR and other things, uh, as well as your methodology in a second. But how, how much does this work tie into, like, the nature versus nurture debate that Kind of like, you know, you're talking a lot about educational and racial outcomes and uh, certain groups of people being more at risk for certain things than others. Yeah. How, how does this work fit into that nature nurture debate? So I think this is kind of this age old debate that we've been asking for, for centuries, really. Is it nature? Is it nurture? And I think now we've all kind of settled on it's, it's nature and nurture. It's nature times nurture. And for the vast majorities of outcomes or phenotypes that we observe in a population, it's the byproduct of both. But it's just, there's a spectrum there. So I think there's some outcomes like Huntington's disease, for example, like a Mendelian trait, where if you have the gene, you're going to have the disease. It doesn't really have much to do with the environment. So you know there are a number of Mendelian traits like that, and we can think of them on the, the one end of the spectrum. You know, and then on the other end of the spectrum might be outcomes that are completely influenced by the environment that have nothing to do with genes. And, and then there's everything in between. So, so I think, um, you know, especially in terms of outcomes that we're interested in as, as economists or sociologists or, or political scientists, things like, you know, uh, educational attainment or intelligence or 
you know, health behaviors, et cetera, you know, these are incredibly complex outcomes that are influenced by a myriad of genes across the genome and a lot of different environmental contexts. And so uh, there it's really nature nurture and it becomes very difficult to actually disentangle the two. Yeah, so I think that's kind of where it fits in, into the whole nature nurture debate. Moving on and kind of pivoting a little bit, you know, here at 10 to 50, we like to get into the nitty gritty a little bit. Like we don't just like to ask researchers what they've found out, but also how they found it out. We're always interested in methodological questions and challenges. So I'm kind of curious how this applies to your work. What unique challenges or unique approaches do you have to approach regarding your methodology when trying to combine these issues of political science and genomics? So could you just maybe give us an example of your methodological approach as it applies to your research? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question, and um, I'll, I'll try to kind of give a short, a, a somewhat like kind of brief, it's, it's hard to be brief, but uh, um, not go too much into the weeds, but give you enough that you kind of can, can grasp a little bit more of the complexities on, on both ends. So I think on, on the genetic side, the challenge is, you know, if you're getting most people when they're genotyped, they're genotyping around two to three million NIPs, uh, or what they're called, single nucleotide polymorphisms. So these are the areas on the genome where we vary from one another. And so you've got this genetic, you know, you've got this data matrix of two to a million points for each person um, across like 20, 30,000 people. So you've got a lot of data. And then of course, you know, I, I do a lot of regression analysis. I do a lot of, you know, econometrics. So I can't throw all, you know, 3 million SNPs uh, into my regression. It's just not possible. So. Most of the challenge, I would say, on the on the data side in terms of genetics is data reduction. So how do we take all of this data now on people? It's like, you know, they compare it to drinking out of a fire hose in terms of the biological data that's coming down the mountain here. It's just incredible. So the, the way in which we've been doing that, both in the social sciences and people who do work with genetics and also um, more and more in the clinic, people are, are using these and, and other um, uh, applications are uh, what's known as polygenic scores. Um, so here, what you're doing is you're um, kind of basically creating one number that is a person's uh, weighted kind of average or uh, risk for a given outcome, given all these different SNPs in their genome. And the weights come from these big genome-wide association studies. So there are genome-wide association studies that are done for things like diabetes, but even education. So here, they're just regressing, you know, educational attainment on each SNP in the genome in a sample of like 1 million people. And they're finding those SNPs that are really, really highly associated with the outcome. And then you can use those weights, they publish them and apply them to your own data to create like a, a weighted sum or you know weighted average of um, a person's genetic risk. So that's how we're kind of taking this, all of this genetic data and, and you know, reducing it to, to a single number. In the past, of course, before the genomics revolution, people used twins, people used adoptees, before we could actually measure the molecular data, um, you were kind of reliant on, on those types of experiments to, to look at environmental and genetic effects. But now we can actually do that. So that's great. But, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think, problems with polygenic scores. And, and I, but I think we're only going to get more accurate at, at measuring these things over time. 
Um, so there's a lot of methodological and advancements that are constantly happening on that side. It's just like nonstop. Then on the social side, you know, as a, a you know, mostly I, I'm really interested in studying gene environment interactions. With that, we're really thinking about how is the environment moderating the genetic response. So with something like smoking, a person may never pick up a cigarette unless they're in this really highly stressful atmosphere where they're given cigarettes, right? And then it's like, who's going to smoke? You know, who's going to keep smoking? And that's very different than like a gene environment correlation, we call it, where somebody is selecting into their environment because of their genetics. So there's a lot of causality that could go both ways. And so that's where on the, on the kind of environment side, I use a lot of the techniques that I learned as an economist in terms of uh, looking at causality in data by using quasi-natural experiments. So things like the Vietnam draft lottery, you know, for example, um, or state differences in policy, these things that we can say are, are plausibly exogenous. And then I interact these experiments kind of with a person's genetic risk. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of challenges with power. Um, I think it's very, very difficult to identify gene environment interactions. I think it's something that is, is very difficult to find because of, you know, power and, and all these other issues um, with the data. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of technical issues and that's, yeah, that's just kind of like a quick breakdown. I hope that was, that was uh, kind of helpful, but yeah, it's a lot of thinking about how to creatively use data and isolate causality and data reduction and all those things. Yeah, it is extremely fascinating to hear about, especially, you know, when most of the methodological stuff that you do in political science are like surveys and things like that. So mm -hmm. that is extremely interesting to hear about. Well, and, and I know this semester you are teaching a class called Policy, Privacy, and Personal Identity in the Post-Genomics Era. The name is just fascinating by itself. Could you tell us a little bit about what this class is all about and you know, what you guys are going to be, or what you guys have been delving into this semester? Yeah, absolutely. So this is my second time teaching the class, um, and I will be teaching it again next spring. So for any of you listening who, who might want to take the class, it's open to undergraduate and graduate level students, regardless of your policy background, regardless of your science background. So I have budding scientists in my class, and I have budding policy experts in my class, and, and we get together, and, and we all learn from each other. So you know, definitely feel free to reach out if you ever have any questions about the class. To just start with the name, you know, what does it mean to be in the post-genomics era? So that's basically any time after the completion of the Human Genome Project, which was around 2003. So that was this huge international undertaking to sequence the entire human genome. And it was really done as a, as a resource that could then be used for biomedical research. So in my class, we really discussed the implications of human genome sequencing for social and health policy. We first do a two-week kind of crash course in, in human and population genetics. So if you, if you don't know anything about genetics, that's okay. We do like a quick crash course so everyone can be on the same page. And then we move into the discussion of topics like the nature-nurture debate, like the eugenics movement. We talk about race versus ancestry, how they're different you know, how all of a sudden everyone being genotyped and knowing where they're from ancestrally, how that might change our conceptualizations of race, et cetera. Personalized medicine. So this huge, especially in the United States initiative to tailor medical clinical kind of advice by, by genotype to people um, that's currently underway. We talk about genome editing. We talk about privacy considerations. What does it mean when you give your data to 23andMe? And how much power does that give, you know, 
what is that, you know, are there, what are the current privacy considerations around that? Then we also talk about um, how genomics is being used to solve crimes, so in criminal justice, um, just to name a few topics. So we really look at it from a lot of different angles. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's really about thinking critically about his, historical context, social context, and also the limits and the complexity of genomics and, and the research that's being done and how we can frame policy problems or make policy recommendations, whether they're directly related to human genetics or tangentially, how we should, we should understand that intersection. Then to then also kind of ask about another area that you talk about in your class, in your syllabus, it includes a unit on genome editing, CRISPR-Cas9, and designer babies. And I think that this is a fascinating topic that is just, you know, much like these issues with data privacy revolving your genomic data is just speeding towards a collision with public policy in terms that we're essentially on the brink of a massive political and ethical debate over this kind of an issue. So I'd, I'd like to ask, how do you talk about these issues and kind of what are the ethical questions at stake in the context of public policy when talking about genome editing? Yeah, yeah, great. It's a great question. I mean, I just, I think straight away, I want to say that I think the discovery and the use of CRISPR-Cas9 technology is one of the most groundbreaking scientific discoveries of the 21st century. CRISPR, if, if you're not sure, if you, you know, aren't familiar with it, it's actually part of the bacterial immune system. So it's something that we learn from bacteria. Um, it's how they target viruses and, and other molecular parasites. It's how they kind of, they're, they're kind of, um, they learn the genome of these, these uh, invade, invaders and then they attack them when they see them again. And so scientists have harnessed that same technology, have harnessed CRISPR to detect a given DNA sequence on our genome. And then they can use that to then target that sequence and edit it. And it's incredibly accurate. I think, I think that's something that kind of blew away the scientific community is how accurate this is. And I think it was only in 2013, 2014, when this was first really used in a human embryo. Um, so it's also still very new, but it's, it's just blowing everyone away. And I think it's, it's really being used to understand um, how our DNA works and how it interacts with other cellular mechanisms. So there's many different forms of CRISPR and it's, it's amazing just for geneticists because they can actually now see what happens, you know, just in a Petri dish when they silence a certain gene, when they introduce something, they can actually figure out the mechanisms now of a lot of things that before were only possible to do with a mouse or just, you know, stuff that I cannot speak to well intellectually, but just, just know that it's, it's revolutionizing, right? And it's going to really help cure disease. It's going to do a lot of things. But as many of us know, recently, it was also used in China to alter uh, human embryos. Particularly, it was, I think, I believe the CCR5 gene, which um, a mutation on this gene is thought to prevent HIV from invading human immune cells. Um, so they were kind of jiggering with that particular gene um, in, these, in these CRISPR babies. And that's, of course, brought up a lot of ethical issues. I think when we discuss this topic in class, we really think about whether genome editing is being used for genetic correction or treatment versus uh, genetic enhancement. And I think there's that's a very clear delineation in the literature around this and the ethics around it. 
Um, so for example, I think that many people would agree that using CRISPR to edit a rare mutation that has a high probability of causing a Mendelian disease, like for example, say the Huntington's mutation, if someone could go in and edit that so that you then don't have Huntington's disease, I think most people you know, would say that, and this is called a somatic mutation if it's done in a living person to their DNA, I think most people would say that is ethical primarily because it's going to increase, increase the quality of life for that person, but also they can give informed consent to the procedure. They can say, yes, I, I want this. And it's not going to affect anybody downstream of that because they're not editing the germline. And that's the second major distinction. When we talk about genetic enhancements that are maybe used to thought of, oh, you know, let's modify these embryos so that they're taller or have a higher IQ or so that they, you know, are uh, immune from HIV. Um, these are all enhancements. These are much, much more controversial because one, you know, the developing embryo can't give informed consent. You know, you can't ask that person, do you want this done to you? And, and also because you're editing the germline, you're editing things that are going to affect future generations forever. So any children that this person has, you know, is going to have that same mutation and you, you can't ask those future generations either. You can't, so in, across the board, it just violates informed consent, which is huge with medical ethics. And so, you know, I think in, in that kind of, in the realm of genetic enhancements and germline mutation or germline editing, um, it's a much more murky area ethically. And this is where I think a lot of policy leaders and scientists have really called on um, tougher regulations or even, you know, just an international moratorium on germline editing before we really understand what we're doing here and, and what the implications could be. So yeah, we talk about those kind of two different distinctions and, and the different policies that are, are forming around them. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how you bring up the idea of an international moratorium because it seems to me like the additional layer of complexity on this question is what happens when you have a bunch of individual countries making individual decisions on whether to allow, say, their citizens or people who come to that country to pay to get CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. So what do you think, how, how do you think that further complicates things? Like, do, do you think that we're going to live in a world where there are some countries, are we essentially in like a prisoner's dilemma of allowing people, of, of legislatures enacting genetic editing bans? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a, a lot of scholars, ethical scholars and legal people in this area think that it should be something that's decided on the international level. Um, and I mean, I think that makes sense because we're, I mean, this is, we're talking about the, the future of the human species. You know, we're, we're not, I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels like this shouldn't have borders. It shouldn't have, you know, boundaries and by countries. Like it's not something that fits with the sociopolitical, you know, concerns of a country. This is the human race, you know, that we're talking about. And, and any decisions that are made in any country could forever affect it. Um, and, and our genome as it is has taken millions of years to evolve to get to this point, you know, so to all of a sudden go in and say, we're going to start changing this, I mean, these mutations and the way things are, are the way they are for a reason. And we don't even understand fully what some of those reasons are yet and how complex these things are interacting with everything else in the body. Um, and we may never understand, that's how complex it is. I don't think that this is something that should be decided at a country level. I think that it's gonna, but I, I think it might be just because of, again, the capitalism of it all, the kind of the, the, the social forces that are coming into play 
the politics, the money that stands to be made, um, all of these things, as we know, oftentimes overshadow rational policy discourse or even ethics. So I think it'll depend. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens down the line. And yeah, I, I wish I could comment a little bit more on it, but this isn't as much, you know, my area of expertise, but but I do know that it's it's something that a lot of people are, are actively working on. Alta Charo, who uh, is a um, legal scholar here at UW-Madison, specializes in this, and um, a lot of people doing brilliant work um, as legal scholars in this area. How has COVID changed your research approach, changed how you are thinking about, you know, these socioeconomic problems that lead to inequality? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it hasn't directly influenced my research agenda in terms of, you know, studying how COVID has affected things. But I think it has kind of reinforced uh, the need to do the research that I do, which is, you know, how socioeconomic disparities can deepen and, and how inequality can, can affect health and long-term outcomes. I think just in the terms of, if we think about work, workers and, and how they've been affected by COVID, you know, if you're from a disadvantaged or minority background, we already know you're gonna have limited opportunities in childhood. You're gonna be more likely to work physically demanding or environmentally hazardous jobs. You might not have health insurance, unstable hours, work schedules. So then if you add a big shock to an already really precarious system, if you add a big shock to it like COVID, on top of these existing disparities and precarities, without proper government intervention, you're gonna see these inequalities in health uh, or you know, socioeconomic status, all these things really deepen because these same workers weren't able to, for example, minimize stressful or, or dangerous exposures to COVID, or um, you know, they weren't able to work from home and stay socially distant. So, so I think it's, it's amplified everything. And I think that that um, has reinforced kind of, I think the need to continue to, to study, to study these, these dynamics of human social inequality and how they interact with population forces um, and, and with underlying uh, genetic susceptibilities. I'm curious just to pick your brain on the question of human free will. Because like a lot of the ideas that we have in like politics in general, like democracy or justice are kind of predicated on the idea that humans are able to make choices. But it seems like a lot of this research that's coming since the genetic revolution has shown that more and more of our decisions we can determine are actually determined by our genes um, instead of say like just us and ourselves. So ju I'm just, I'm just curious as to how do you think humans have free will or may, and maybe if so how much oh wow yeah that's I, it's an interesting question because i think yes i do think we have free will um but i do think the extent to which we can exercise that um varies by people's you know access to to opportunity by their kind of what they were born into, you know, socioeconomically. And I think also um, it could make it a little bit harder sometimes to exercise your free will if you have certain genetics, you know? So I think for an example, I think a lot about, you know, these structural kind of barriers to, to, to getting ahead in society. So, so we know on the socioeconomic side that, you know, just being born uh, with a different color skin or a different, you know, sex or whatever, 
can definitely shape the, the access to opportunities that you have. So you might not even know, wow, I can do this. I can exercise this free will. I can ask for a raise or I, you know, whatever it is, because nobody's ever told you you could do that. Nobody's ever given you the tools to know that you need to do that. So I, I think that's what a lot of these, when, when social scientists talk about structural inequality kind of on the social side, I think with the genetics, kind of the ways in which I think about it are, you know, it, it, if you, you know, make the choice to say, start smoking cigarettes, like we've been talking about, or to start drinking alcohol at a certain time or point, you don't necessarily know what genes you have. It might be that it, it's much more difficult for you um, to drink moderately, for example, or to um, have a healthy approach to um, you know, smoking, which can never really be healthy, but you know, to drinking and things like that, a lot of addiction and a lot of problems of addiction are really influenced by genetics. And it makes it much more difficult, I think, for people to then make choices that they know are best for them because they're, they're because of the way their, their body processes those chemicals or, or that those compounds and, and how it creates cravings and addiction and all these different things. So Yes, I think we have free will, but I think that free will can definitely be constrained sometimes by genetic or social forces. I'd like to ask you now, what should we have talked about during this interview? Is there anything that you feel like we didn't talk about that our listeners need to hear or just anything else that you feel like you needs to be said? I'm not sure. I think I think I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna flip that back around on you guys. And after we've talked about what we've talked about, was there anything that popped into your mind that you want to ask me now that you hadn't thought about asking at the start of the interview, but that all of a sudden kind of comes to mind? I, I I've got one that I'm kind of interested in. What do you think is the most likely outcome when it in, in terms of this? Uh, policy debate between genetics and privacy, because it seems like thus far, the United, at least in the United States, um, less so in Europe, the federal government has been very lenient in terms of regulating tech industries in terms of distributing user data. And I think that there's a lot of parallels to the genetics industry, where it's a lot of these younger kind of upstart companies that their main product is data on individuals, but now it's just so much more. However, it does seem that we are seeing a little bit of pushback on say like the social media side after like the Equifax hack and everything, but it still hasn't necessarily been enough to regulate that industry. So I guess given this context, and I guess given this maybe like potentially viable analogy to the social media industry that we can maybe use as a little bit of a precedent, how do you think this policy debate is going to play out? And then what do you think the consequences of that? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I think it's a lot of, it, it, in terms of genetic data, I think it's something that people haven't thought about as much in, in the um, kind of mainstream, but it's something that we're going to be thinking about a lot, even in the next five years, um, maybe even faster than that, um, because of you know just how fast how cheap it's just continually. I mean, I, I think really the the kind of the fact that it's becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper just exponentially to genotype people is, is just gonna make it so that our genetic data are just gonna become more um, attractive as another kind of good that is bought or sold um, on the market. And the question then becomes how 
is this something, I mean, there's something about our DNA that seems really personal, but is it any more personal than what we say on social media or a picture we post or, I mean, there's something about it, but I, but I think the social media kind of parallel is a really good one because I think just much like they own your data, I think when you, when you give your DNA to companies like 23andMe, you know, there's certain restrictions on what they can do and you can definitely opt out of certain things, but, but a lot of people don't know that they should or could do that. And, and then they, they do kind of own a copy of your DNA and, and that's something that they can then sell or use in research or, you know, kind of maybe use in ways that you hadn't originally thought about. So I think what's going to be really interesting is that people are going to start to really think about their relationship to their DNA and, and what it means to them and, and how they want it used. Um, and I think that that, that kind of um, reflection maybe is, is going to kind of really inform a lot of the, the policy debate uh, around privacy. I think that it is something that needs to be regulated. I think it's something that is really important. Um, I think we've seen this too in the in the area of um, criminal genomics that you know now you know there are certain ways in which you know um, the the FBI can use 23andMe data and so forth to um, actually look for you know if they if somebody isn't in the CODIS criminal database they can search for that person through relatives through 23andMe and so then this is kind of starting to invade on the on the privacy of those relatives and those people so so you know, there's, there's many powerful ways in which we can use DNA. Um, and I, I think, you know, again, it's just going to come down to the social ethos of, of us thinking about what we want and what we don't want. And I think there need to be a lot of, um, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had more in the political discourse, you know, about these things. Um, so it's hard to predict, but I, I do think it's, I do predict that it's going to be something that's going to become increasingly mainstream and at the forefront of, of social discourse. The last question that we like to ask our guests is, you know, it's obviously been a very long year. What makes you hopeful now that we, you know, are entering this, it finally feels like spring outside again, um, it's warm out where it's this new period. What makes you hopeful now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, really great, lovely question to end the interview on. I think the things that I've noticed, I think um, what makes me really hopeful right now is, is resilience. So just seeing how resilient students have been. We've all been through so much, some of us more than others with, with COVID and um, to see people anxious to get back together, to do things together and, and push on is, is really hopeful. And I, I think also just in, in my students, I, I see a change in that I think they're even more passionate now and more motivated to create the change that we need in the world. I see kind of this new, fresh kind of invigoration of let's go out and, and let's 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 make some positive change. Let's do some great things in this world. And, and that makes me really hopeful because I do think that um, there's a lot of change that we need. And um, it's good to see students coming out positive and, and ready to go. On that note, Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schmitz, and on your birthday, no less. So I don't. I think this might be our first podcast birthday. Or maybe nobody talks about it because I always, I always tell people it's my birthday. I'm like one of those people, and some people, eh, I'm not going to say anything. But all right. Well, th this will come out a bit later, so you, it can be like kind of a stealth announcement that it was your birthday. <laughs> there you go. I like that. I like that. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom.
1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>